This podcast is sponsored by Coolabola that creates simple and very advanced websites, as well as creating fantastic animation. If you or someone you know is looking to start or update their websites, we're offering a genuine 20% discount with the code AWAKENING. Just go to coolabola.com and the links are in the podcast description. Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is again uh, Freedom International live stream, and we with Roy, Jane, and of course, our very dear, beautiful, lovely, intelligent, incredible mind guest, Matthew Eret. We welcome you and thank you for being with us. And thank you for sharing this. So whatever resonates to you, please don't hesitate. Share it, okay? Because that's what's going to make a difference. Share this. So Matthew, this is his Matthew's second time. And we really appreciate him because we were getting into that meat of the conversation last time. And he just had to go because Matthew is just wanted all over, you know, with his brilliant mind. So Matthew Eret is the co-founder of the Rising Tide Foundation with his lovely wife, Cynthia Chung. And he is also the chief editor of, editor-in-chief of the Canadian Patriot Review. And she, he is the senior fellow at the American University of Moscow and a BRI expert for Rogue News. And then he has all these art articles that you can research and you could read. And it is so good that I myself, it seems like I will never miss any of Matthew's Substack newsletter. So go subscribe that also, because he's going to make me so intelligent, I'm telling you. <laughs> and also, even other people, I know that they're making his website, whether it's in the Canadian Patriot Review and the Rising Tide Foundation, as like a go-to reference. So. And he is the author of uh, two series, and I believe these two books, The Untold History of Canada and then The Clash of the Two Americas, that uh, is, are being uh, translated into Russian, right, Matthew? Yeah, yeah, that was a happy surprise. Yeah, not not all of them though. Just the the Clash of the Two Americas, mm -hmm. uh, Volume One and Volume Two, tackling the U.S. untold history from seventeen seventy six, uh, seventeen seventy four, until like the future. Um, so that it's a it's a big uh, swap of history, but um, I tried to pick out some of the most important singularities within that time that continuum. Uh, to just get across to people that there's not just one monolithic United, United States, as many had been falsely led to believe for a very, you know, for far too long, that there's just one imperial America that's run roughshod over the world since JFK was killed. And, and that oversimplification really destroyed the ability for many people to appreciate the nuance of the battle, which really emerged when Hillary Clinton faced her big upset in 2016. They didn't understand how do you think about this when everything that the oligarchy that people have for those who have come to realize that there is an oligarchy and have been looking at its influence in the united states they couldn't explain how is it that for such a power that's been able to achieve whatever it wanted for so long you know you want towers to go down you want a, a country to be regime changed you it, it's it's like there was hardly any resistance but then all of a sudden you you saw that they couldn't even get their sociopathic puppet into the presidency as much effort as they put into that, it didn't work. 
So it became more real in people's minds that there actually are two Americas at war with each other, which explains why every single American president died while in office, which is what we talked about last time mm-hmm. I was on. It, there, there's something that's a direct continuity from the, the founding of the Declaration of Independence to, and the Constitution all the way through to the present of these two different opposing traditions existing in the same geographical location. But it's not just America. It's also we see we see fifth column operations penetrating China, penetrating Russia, penetrating India, penetrating Canada. It's everywhere. And we so we, we have examples throughout history and into the present of patriots who don't want to sacrifice their societies onto an altar of some technocratic, you know, priesthood. And then you have those who are just willing to be instruments for that evil. Um, and that's that's history. So by appreciating that, you're able to then, I think, cut through a lot of the misinformation that sort of spread around the the intellectual ecosystem that's been created to bring truth seekers, especially into into false explanatory models, whether it's, you know, I mean, there's so many, you know, shape shifting lizards or whatever it is, you know, there's just so many things that that give you a lot of crumbs that give you a lot of truth that are very attractive. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, into a place where you're you're trying to you know you're you're basically just detaching yourself from the process that you're a part of by saying okay well I'm just gonna sit back and watch the show you know like everything's good or either either everything is good there the the good white hats are totally in control I could just eat my popcorn and just you know <laughs> comment as a voyeur while I'm enjoying the show or it's all screwed all parts are controlled there's nothing we can do. It's all a big Hegelian dialectic game. I could just sit back and depress and eat my my popcorn in a more depressive state while I'm waiting for the <laughs> the shit show to, to unfold, you know? But in both cases, the reality of an actual fight for humanity is not presented in a proper way at all. And thus your ability to participate subjectively in that objective process is also cut off from you, which is, I think, the design for a lot of these things. So yeah, Russia... To make a long story short, yeah, I was happy to, to discover that a publishing house in Russia liked that thesis and uh, and is publishing. It should be in the next month or so available in Russian. And there's a volume three of The Untold History, uh, which my wife and I are, are just putting the finishing touches on right now, uh, that should be available in English soon, like in three weeks. Well, fantastic. And thank you for everything that you do, because I know you're always really um, always giving yourself for for people so you could you know keep sharing and you give it generously and I, I even you mentioned in one of your interviews that you know Matthew is that type of person even if he's really you know he needed that uh, monetary income to make all these things happen for him in this as a, for subscription but if you really what if you wanted to just be participate don't hesitate to email matthew in the two in the two website that we mentioned the rising tide foundation so this is really sad matthew but what is it that in the americans or maybe not just the americans that they don't really see or yeah i think in general they don't see what america or what's happening with this the clash of the two americas and and then of course i still remember when i was growing up then in the philippines that we kind of see that about the cold war but then at the same time we feel like russia is is still in bed with america and of course in the world war one and two of course they were you know allies but then at the, but then 
currently it seems like we, we it's obvious that the mainstream is like making it that you know that how how Russia has been so bad in all those past yeah. events. Yeah. So I guess I wanted you to just kind of like um, share whatever your thought is in terms of how do we really see this? Is everyone in the entire world with the great reset that the that the oligarchs and the technocrats are saying? And with that, Matthew, just connect it with if some are not, how come when it comes to the COVID thing that happened, all we hear is everyone is doing the same thing, meaning mandating to their own people? Yes, that's that's a that's a comprehensive question, and I will I will do my best uh, to address it um, as best as I can. For the first part regarding um, why it is that so many people are susceptible to oversimplifying um, their reality for either the naive view that, you know, what we see on mainstream media is is reality or the opposing hyper cynical oversimplified view that it's all a lie. There's nothing true. It's all a giant operation to kill us. Either extremes. Extremes are always whenever you, you break the nuance of of. Uh, the richness of reality which there is good and evil i do believe that but in in the real history as it has unfolded um for the past thousands of years there there's a lot of nuance there's a lot of good people who say bad things but then do good things there's bad people who say good things and then do bad things and then there's you know and then there's good people who who become corrupted and do bad things and then there's bad people who sometimes sometimes very very rarely but occasionally will end up under positive influence breaking from their own nature and doing good things and become better that sometimes happens i mean you know the the, the paul of damascus or saul you know becoming paul on the road of road to damascus that does happen so you have to have this like appreciation for the 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 what human beings are as this we're not just a computer program that's just fixed from our beginning point onward and we'll just always behave in some monolithic way and so politics is like it's it's sophisticated it's 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 uh you know and sure sometimes you do get a, a john f kennedy who just comes out clearly and concisely saying what he's going to do openly loudly and morally and it sounds great and it is great i mean wonderful but at the same time these people will sometimes be a bit hot-headed and not wise to the nature of the serpents around them and will often find themselves dead before they could accomplish a lot of what they set out to do right so you have to also be aware that being being romantic can sometimes get you killed and undo a lot of greater goods yeah. that you would have been better keeping your cards closer to your chest on. So people like Ben Franklin, who lived a very old life, was was one person who didn't make that mistake and confused a lot of his enemies into thinking that he was their friend and even some of his friends into thinking that he was their enemy. But if you look at the effects of his works, you find that the 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 actions speak for themselves in terms of creating institutions, creating upshifts in thinking and discoveries that transcended individual lifetimes and which upset the grand design of those who wish to have a feudal type of slave society where the idea of hereditary structures would never be questioned. So I think that's always important also to look at the, the effects of the works of people. Mm -hmm. Trump is, an, is a recent example of somebody who he's crass, you know, I, I think he's got some blind spots, some big blind spots, but at the same time, he would often say something super ugly and, and atrocious, and then he'd go and do something eminently reasonable. 
and he did that consistently for quite a long time on a number of very important things that did disrupt the New World Order designs that I know were there. I know that their timeline was completely screwed up by a lot of what happened between 2016 and 2020. Putin, Xi Jinping, a lot of these other countries, you'll find similar examples of that um, throughout their histories. So I think why do people fall for a lot of the, the misinfo is I think because the effects of the CIA um, never went away in terms of the CIA's control of the media during the Cold War of things like Project Mockingbird that had, I mean, it became revealed in the church committee hearings in the 70s that uh, the CIA had thousands, if not tens of thousands of their operatives installed in positions of high authority within editorial boards, uh, news anchors, directors of news agencies everywhere, right, from the 1940s onward, or since the CIA was created in 47. That's part of it. There's still a lot of the, they've created, I think, certain psychological, uh, hypnotic uh, trances and spells. So sp I don't want to be magical about this, but they've created certain, they've shaped the zeitgeist in certain ways with certain triggers around big, bad, atheist, commie, um, super villain, which you have to, you know, be super afraid of to the point that you let the FBI and Hoover run a dictatorship in your country and you're riding on your neighbors who you think might be, you know, socialist or something. And, and people underestimate what a psychological terror operation the Cold War was. It really was a Hoover oversaw like he was there for seven presidents, J. Edgar Hoover. Um, and he was totally in bed with the worst satanic elements of high level, you know, 33rd degree Freemason Freemasonry. That was his identity, you know, um, and so there's there's that we still have those traditions that maybe they went dormant a little bit with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1992. And people got this like sense of, oh, we don't have to live in nuclear war terror and we can just like live now in the end of history and, and breathe a little bit. And so they turned off some of the triggers of fear for a while as Russia was being taken over by the Wall Street and London financiers. You know, George Soros poured two billion dollars that he bragged about into buying up formerly state-owned enterprises in Russia and then giving it to a bunch of or basically helping a bunch of sociopathic oligarchs trained in Harvard and Oxford and then brought back to their home country in Russia to then manage this new oligarchy. Uh, they were intent on fulfilling Zbigniew Brzezinski's wet dream of a, of a hyper-balkanized Russia broken down into something like nine or ten different mini microstates. That was what Zbigniew Brzezinski made maps of in his grand chessboard in 1997. And, and you know, he thought he was going to get it. Everyone did. No one imagined that there was going to be any type of patriotic uh, pushback against this uh, rape of Russia. That was impossible to fathom when Strobe Talbot, the Rhodes Scholar, you know, was working with Al Gore and, and Russian oligarchs and George Soros and Victoria Newland, who was Strobe Talbot's personal assistant during that period to carve up Russia. They had tried... Yeah, yeah, you're right, Matthew. It's so mm -hmm. true when they did this all this indoctrination and propaganda systematically, yeah. and so that and it, this one may be just a very simple analogy in my head. It's just like for all many decades, people say low fat, low fat, low fat, and then suddenly, um, you know, the health of the entire population is really was related to the low fat. Now it's hard yeah. for people to get out of their head about the low fat, even if yeah. they already were educated, but there's good fat, but they always default to a low fat. And I've seen that. That's great. Yeah, no, I know people still buy margarine, even though they know that, yeah, margarine's not good for you, but they're like in their 1970s, yeah. you know, conditioning that, yeah, margarine's better than butter. 
And so yeah. they still sell it. <laughs> and, the sad, yeah. and the sad part, Ma Matthew, is that when you only, when you get stuck with one perspective and one understanding, and then you really don't want to look at other things. And, you know, or, or, or like when you, when people, they've been hearing about uh, things that about China, 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 Russia, yeah. Russia, Russia. Yeah. So now everything, we can't see the out, good outcomes. Because I, for one, is really like fascinated because I was I went to visit China in 2010 and then, you know, as part of the delegation and it was like amazing on what kind of economic development they have like exponentially done on yeah. plus plus their their, you know, when we were interacting with nurses, they were so sharp when I say so sharp that when we were one of us was presenting a research as a part of the evidence-based research, they were able to pinpoint what the flaw of the research was mm. that quick, okay? Mm. So that's like intelligence, why I mean, why? So, um, so if you can still uh, help us understand that, and I know I'll just bring it before I pass it on to Roy after you respond to this, I just bring that uh, comment out, uh, the request of a, a viewer to say, if you are familiar with the Kazarian mafia or anything that's related to that, okay? Yeah, absolutely, gee whiz. Uh, that second question from the, the audience is super enticing and almost deserves, I'm gonna be doing a whole show on that uh, in, in two weeks uh, to some Jerusalem-based organization who liked my work on Kazaria. But that's, so you that's, can, that's you can give us just a little bit. <laughs> I'll give you a taste. Yeah, okay. All right. So for the first part, yeah. So indeed, it's we're we're not being told. Uh, obviously, those controlling the access or the great narrative that we're being allowed to think about when we analyze the other part of the Iron Curtain, Eurasia, China, Russia, we're given very specific filters that allow in certain information. It's like it's like a warp lens, you know that we're allowed to look at the world through. And it's a controlled warp lens so that either only certain bad things, because these there there's not, it's all not all peachy keen, right? I mean, there's not like, it's not like angels run China or Russia. It's not that. So there, there will be injustices, but only those injustices are either allowed through or a mistortion of facts to make things appear unjust, which when you actually look at the evidence are nothing of the sort. Or uh, ignoring just filters that it's like a polarized lens will not permit in um, different uh, fields of light specifically, right? They'll, they'll allow one plane of light, but they'll polarize lenses will polarize out, uh, cut off everything that was not tuned to that lens, that, that, that uh, index. Um, so it'll just ignore all sorts of contextual important material that would prove that the thesis is, is, is a lie. That's what happens. So in China's case, yeah, like they've been, they've got their own fifth columns. Um, they've been dealing with them. Unlike us though, who have allowed the fifth columns to like take federal control of our governments. <laughs> there you actually see evidence of a serious fight. Like people like, you know, Great Reset fanatic, uh, you know, World Economic Forum trustee Jack Ma. They're sort of Bill Gates of China who runs Alibaba and a whole complex of multi-billion dollar operations on behalf of a few Western leaning uh, billionaires. His whole He's, he's very much similar to, to Bill Gates on, on so many levels. But as a World Economic Forum trustee, he's somebody who went and essentially called for an economic regime change in China in a public setting in October 2020. And I mean, rather than just sort of like make darling comments about 
you know, what an interesting man he is. What what an interesting theory. No, he got taken down by the authorities. He was like brought to his mansion. People were like, what happened to him for three months? He's like, did he die? No, he was like brought to his mansion, told he was given the riot act. His all of his his privileges were stripped down. Um, his assets were like cut in little pieces. He's still a billionaire, but he's not allowed to do anything, you know. Whereas here, people like like that are are made deputy prime minister of Canada, you know, or <laughs> or worse. And um, and so there's a lot of examples of fight. And as you said, when you actually go there, you see what China has been able to do, especially since um, I would say a big period was when uh, George Soros's operative uh, Zhao Ziyang who was first premier in the early 80s, and then he became secretary general of the Chinese Communist Party in 87, 88, 89. He was, he was put under arrest. He was ousted. He was stripped of everything. In 1989, uh, Shen Yitzi, his, uh, his personal assistant who ran one of the biggest economic reform think tanks run by George Soros. It was an open society think tank. He ran it with Soros. He was he was imprisoned. Sor that all of Soros's operations were banned. Soros was made illegal in China 26 years ago. Russia only got the the, the ability, the strength back, to do it in 2015. So these are two countries where it's illegal to set up or be a part of anything that is tied in any way to George Soros. And if you just look at the case of Kazakhstan, if people are like, oh, but those are just a couple of think tanks, how could Soros have that much influence? Look at Kazakhstan, 20. Thousand, it's estimated. Um, that's conservative NGOs that ran the attempted color revolution just a few months ago to overthrow the government because Kazakhstan is right between China and Russia, right? It's a it's a strategic zone on the on the Silk Road corridor. Anybody who would destabilize that, it's also a key part of the Eurasian Economic Union, which is the foundation stone for the new Eurasian Economic Union China economic architecture, which is currently being brought online. That's what Sergei Glazyev, one of the leading patriots and nationalists of Russia is leading. It's one of his intellectual babies now for 20 years. He's, he's now being given the authority to do it. And this is in operation while there's a purge happening inside of Russia as well. 800 million people have been lifted out of poverty inside of China alone just in the past 20 years. They've built 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. The U.S. has hardly anything. I think maybe like, what, 100 kilometers in California, which is you're lucky if you can go 150 miles an hour. That's not high-speed. You can go like three to 400 miles an hour in China. Um, they've got magnetic levitation. They've got quantum computing. Like people who are saying, oh, the, the big tropes I often see is, oh, China's only able to do all of these things because they've stolen technologies from the West. And it's like, sure. I think that in the 70s and 80s, they did get technology from the West. I don't know how much of it was stolen, but I know that was a big part of what Henry Kissinger uh, organized when he wanted to, you know, dismantle Western economic sovereignty. That was always the idea of globalization when Kissinger went and said, okay, let's create cheap labor markets and sweatshops in uh, the, the global South and especially China. His idea was not that we're going to make more money that way with dollaramas. That was not the agenda. That's maybe what he said. You're going to have more shareholder value by having cheap labor instead of paying highly, highly educated, high tech labor in Canada or the USA. You could do the same thing for one tenth of the cost by outsourcing to Mexico or uh, China. No, his agenda was to always create a master slave dependency where China would never be allowed to develop their infrastructure, their people, and they would always have just enough to just keep their noses a little bit above water, but never become wealthy enough to buy any of the things that they themselves were making, while all of the cheap shoes and, and, and other crap 
was going to be shipped halfway around the world to the consumer consumer cult of people who couldn't make anything for themselves anymore and nobody would have economic dependency to stand on their own two feet and it would just be these middlemen that kissinger worked for around david rockefeller the trilateral commission and these other people who also happened to be fanatics for depopulation and and things like population control which is why i i mean i write about this in my volume two extensively people think oh that that china is a big population control uh, zone look at what they did with their one child policy in 1979 no that was henry kissinger that was the club of rome that was that was brought into china the club of rome is not a chinese institution that was at the heart of the world economic forum create computer models that would calculate optimal population levels for human carrying capacity under a new world order of a, I think about 1 billion or so was what they consent, they had a consensus around. That was what was brought into China on the condition that they were poor. They, they, they'd they been self-destructive under the years of, of the Gang of Four and Mao's cultural mm-hmm. revolution. That did them a lot of damage. So they had to, you know, their, their post-Mao leadership who had jailed the Gang of Four. I'm like, well, if, if, if it's still Mao and the Gang of Four logic running the world, like you would think if you read Steve Bannon's work, you're like, oh, it's still, it's still that. It's like, well, then why did, why did the gang of four get put in prison? And, you know, immediately the second Mao died, what, mm-hmm. what fought back? And again, what did Zhao Ziyang, George Soros' stooge, do when he facilitated the entry of these computer models that forced one-child policies, which have been, it's admitted as a disaster by the Chinese themselves, that this was a bad idea. And they're still trying to recover. They have not recovered yet, even though they've, they never extended it to the, the, the Uyghurs. So it's only for it was only for the Han. If you were a, a Uyghur or Tibetan Buddhist or any of the other minority group, you never had that. You could always have five, six, seven kids. Now it's only in 2015 that they lifted it. They lifted it to two. Now they lifted it as of last year to three. The the leading figures in the Chinese academia and in the in the scientific uh, the Academy of Sciences are all saying that by the end of the 2030s it has to be a complete lift. Because they've destroyed, like they've, they know that they, they were induced to hurt themselves, just like we were induced to hurt ourselves, you know, shutting down our economy for 40 mm-hmm. years of, of atrophy. And now two years straight where we've lost two years on average of life expectancy under COVID, we've lost it that we had in 2019. We've lost that. I mean, look at the insurance coverage. I mean, or the insurance companies have all, have all talked about this. So, you know, we, nations have not been driving the show it's been the supranational financier oligarchy that wants to destroy the u.s china russia they've wanted to destroy the sovereign nation state system itself and the ancient cultures which these which these different nations uh have within them they want to get rid of the five thousand year old indian culture and civilization and its history and its traditions and the confucian ancient and buddhist ancient traditions and culture of, of China and Asia. They want to just reset all of that to create, and they want to get rid of Christianity and they want to get rid of, of, of Islam. And they want to get rid of all of these ancient civilizational memories to basically, they think of it as a video game, as a, as a, as a hard drive, hard drive restart. That's how they're thinking about human beings. They're that crazy. It's, it's really ivory tower. Like in the metaverse, but we won't let them. We won't let them, and that's why we're continuing this conversation. And so, uh, thank yeah. you very much, Matthew. I'll pass it on to Roy. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Uh, hi, Matthew. Nice to see you again. Likewise. So, I don't want to <clears throat> divert from where we're talking, but just a quick tangent to something that's fresh off the pr- the press. I mean, even the blind man saw what happened uh, this week at the Oscars. So we had. When I saw it, I saw it fairly fast on the monday morning and i was like 
that looked staged to me because I could see the stance that Chris Rock put on. And it was just today that I'm after seeing, I didn't realize that Pfizer was actually sponsoring the Oscars. And is it alopecia? I'm not sure, sure is the terminology for the hair loss. They have a drug that's just about to be approved. So, like, have you heard about that? I'm, I'm, I would be surprised if there's anything Pfizer is not support not sponsoring in the mainstream and <laughs> you just see them sponsoring everything no not specifically that i i know it was like the least watched oscars ever uh so maybe they needed to get a little bit of a heat or a scandal to try to boost the views or something i don't i don't know i'm not sure yeah okay so going back to the oligarchs i mean reality is uh, uk and america have not declared war so they technically wouldn't have any rights to seize assets of these people. By so it's just a pony show again, pretending what they're doing. Well, they have no legal right to seize Canadian bank accounts either, in the eyes of the law. But they did. Um, they they have total total defiance for the idea of law, as it has been known um, as, as something to constitutionally protect citizens from them. That's why we have most of the laws that we enjoy, is because there has been a fight organized by the people to create trans tr institutions that could endure past individual lifetimes that could be improved upon self-perfect and enforce ever more perfect laws. That's, that's in the constitution of the United States, right? To form a more perfect union. The idea is, you, you know, people, logicians would look at that. People who believe in just pure, like, you know, pure logic. They're, that's absurd. What, a, what an arc, what an absurd idea. You, you're either better or you're perfect. But to be more perfect means nothing. It's it's a meaningless term, right? It's one or the other. It's like, no, the founding fathers were smarter than these logicians. They actually had a better philosophy where they could recognize that we'll never achieve perfection because we're not robots. You know, like that's if we ever became so perfect that nothing could be made better, we'd be in a pretty bad world. Like like that would be a world where we'd all be these like perfect robots, which has no have no free will. We couldn't make mistakes. We couldn't choose to be other than, you know, uh, perfect. That would be terrible. No free will. No, that, geez, like breakdown. So no, I mean, the, the idea of laws is to is to express justice as it is embedded in the fabric of, of nature. Before there were humans, there was still justice, right? And so we are the only creature that's able to create laws and improve upon them to better express that justice um, as we understand it with no end. We could always do it better. So I think that, yeah, these guys currently trying, they want to... They want to Im impose under their idea of uh, a technocratic or technotronic, as, as the big new Brzezinski called it, right? A technotronic age, an, an idea of of imposing a set of 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 laws that are not really laws. They're just instruments of violence to be the uh, the will of the stronger to control the weaker. And so they don't believe in morality. They don't believe in justice. They think these are just nice opiates of the masses to keep us in shame and self-organized so that we can be better controlled by the elites who have transcended right and wrong and good and evil, right? The, the Nietzschean ubermenschen, the over, the, the superhumans, uh, as these transcendentalists like to think of themselves. And they're just so superior that they know that, you know, all you have is will to power. So in their sense right now, they're going for Nietzschean sort of, heavy-handed iron fist out of i think both partially uh, a certain stubborn temper tantrum 
that they're that the script is not being obeyed the way that they had expected it to be a decade ago. It was all supposed to sort of unfold a lot differently. Hillary Clinton was supposed to win. Bashar al-Assad was supposed to get the Saddam Hussein Gaddafi treatment. Kazakhstan was supposed to be overturned into a, in a Soros regime change. Venezuela was supposed to get their their Guaido World Economic Forum Obama you know clone sponsored by Christia Freeland and, and Canada's Ben Rouswell. That was supposed to happen in 2018. All of these things were supposed to happen and, and it's not happening. So I think you do have that sort of like infantile ego expression of rage coming out on the one hand. So, you know, maybe they thought that like the, the Canadian truckers convoy, they, they thought that maybe, I, I think that there was evidence that there were some nefarious dealings at the beginning. There's some people who are tied to the Obama network, Soros networks, who are controlling the money that was used as sort of startup to get the the ball rolling in the on the convoy that 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 went to Ottawa, and I think they had this whole elegant script planned where they were going to have you know a bunch of Nazi flags that they would they would set up. They'd be able to turn it violent. They had bricks laid out as well, rubble and bricks, where they thought that they could maybe get some of their more their provocateurs to to do something violent and justify what they were they were saying about it as this violent white supremacist insurrectionary can you know july or january 6th of canada so everything you heard justin saying about the fringe minority the racist all the stuff misogynist um and christia freeland they're all saying the same thing but reality showed a very different a different set of of examples i it 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 sparked something that was so big that nobody realized just how much feeling and how much sense of of desire to survive was actually in the canadian hearts that we had I mean, I hundreds of thousands of, of people come out and give their support all over Canada. It was so much bigger than anybody realized and so much more peaceful. The, you know, and it, so it was a savvy pro process where it was not permitted to degenerate into violence and they couldn't break from their script. Their idea was to always seize the bank accounts, but they wanted to have more justification. All, they didn't have any of that. They just went and, and they were like, OK, we're, our plan isn't working. Let's just do it anyway. We've committed to our plan. And I think that's sort of what they're they're doing now with the case of of Russia and China. You know, they, and they just just, just on that because you know you're 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 saying about the, their expectation. I mean, yeah. I've, I've like I'm familiar just to a few friends that get mm. involved with refugee camps, and it is terrible. There's some people they're there 17 years. Like people don't think of these things, mm. but I don't think they were expecting Poland to basically not put them into camps but open their doors. I've a lot of friends that basically said, "Hey, come into our house," and I don't think they were expecting that to, to happen. There's a lot they weren't expecting. I mean, I, you know, looking at Ned Price um, in the weeks before Putin um, acknowledged the, the desire for sovereignty of Luhansk and Donetsk, the republics, they had been calling for sovereignty for eight years. They're, they're over 90% ethnic Russian. I mean, Ukraine's not like most other countries. A lot of these Balkan countries are not your typical idea of a country. It's a very mixed population with a very, very complex history. But these these were were people who, since 2014, they had plebiscites, they had referendums calling for uh, uh, independence because they could see clearly that the U.S. had just orchestrated a coup d'état in 2014, utilizing hardcore Nazis funded by billionaires like uh, you know Igor Kolomoskoy, who also controls Zelensky, who also is tied to Barissima Holdings, who's the main owner of Barissima, actually, which is the Hunter Biden operation that that Joe Biden oversaw as the uh, the viceroy of Ukraine, right, for for quite a few years. He was going back and forth to Ukraine every three months, uh, reaping his monetary harvest 
So you got you got a a very controlled fake puppet government that was installed that's very violent that carried out uh, mass murder. I mean, people were burned alive by these you know next generation Nazis who believed that World War II the good guy was Hitler and the bad guy was Stalin. They've been they've been given CIA produced propaganda for decades. Their parents got it. Their grandparents got it. These are unrehabilitated, <laughs> hardcore Nazis, and there's a lot. It's a big cultural problem. So, you know, these people who, who are ethnic Russian, they, they speak Russian, all of this, they could see that there was, you know, something coming down as a bloodbath. They called for independence. They, they've been trying to fight to defend themselves. 14,000 died in the East over the past eight years. And, and finally, when evidence was coming clear that the U.S. State Department was preparing to launch a, another bloodbath, a serious one with an attack on Crimea and East Donbass. That was that was underway. And, you know, Ned Price, again, the spokesperson for the, the State Department was saying, oh, yeah, it's going to happen, but it's going to be Russia blaming, creating a false flag using crisis actors that they're going to blame on Kiev, but it's actually them carrying out a bloodbath against their own people. But th don't be fooled. And he was saying that in February 18th, 19th, 20th. And everyone's like, what the hell? You know, and you. Mike Lee, you know, the, the associate press uh, journalist at the White House was like, what are you talking about? You're sounding like Alex Jones here. Um, but no, in hindsight, there was actually a serious plan um, that was going to be unleashed that was going to create a lot of death and and force then a reaction from Russia. But with the the dominant position being still given to the U.S., the CIA running their their Nazis. Russia didn't want to have that type of destabilization. They, the, the fight is now currently who's going to stay in control of the narrative because the, the system is, that was designed to blow in 1971, our banking system was turned into a time bomb and that time bomb is now rupturing. Now is the blow. So the fight is not, it was never, will we stop the blowout? I mean, we could have earlier, earlier on we had chances. We, we did. We, we, we missed those chances. Um, we had them in 87. We, we dropped the ball. We had it in 80, in 99. We dropped it. We had it in 2008. We could have done Glass-Steagall, broke up the banks, wiped out the bad debts, rebuilt the economy according to proven principles. We didn't do that. So now the, the system will blow. The question is, what's going to shape the, the, the new system? So obviously, the Eurasian countries have their idea, their, their operating system, which is not in harmony in any way with the unipolar depopulation great reset agenda it's it's two different paradigms so there's a big fight over who's going to control that now russia went in as soon as zelensky called for having nuclear weapons which they do by the way also have not only bio labs in uh run by the pentagon in uh in ukraine but they also have there's a lot of evidence that there has been an ongoing effort to rehabilitate ukraine's nuclear weapons program in chernobyl utilizing creating dirty bombs small nuclear warheads within chernobyl they've got a, a robust nuclear sector that was built during the soviet time that's still there's a lot of specialized uh scientists who are deployable to do that so Zelensky went to munich he said publicly we want a nuclear bomb if uh if we can't get into nato immediately that, that was a red line within two days you know luhansk donetsk were recognized as republics um a cooperative agreement was signed with russia and then the next phase now, which was the total denazification program, did go was unleashed, as we know. And there's been a very slow, I mean, Western the, the neoconservatives commentators are trying to say what a what what a disaster this is for Russia, because look, they haven't done what we did in Iraq. When we went to Iraq, we just we just dropped twenty thousand 
you know, bombs in the first day and destroyed all their civilian infrastructure. And we killed like thousands of people already right away. We, we, we went in dominant. Look at shock and awe in Afghanistan. That's the way you do it. They're not doing it our way. So they must be failing. And it's like, no, they're not doing it your way because they don't want to destroy civilians or civilian in infrastructure. That's why you could still get on the internet and there's people on both sides of the camp in Ukraine who are, who have running water. They're, they're able to send information to the internet, right? And upload. It's because Russia is very carefully, it's their people. They, they're, they, they're seeing this as an, as an area that they want to be governable. Not like us that, that put, that wanted Libya back in the stone age. <laughs> and there, there is no media showing all of the atrocities that uh, the U.S. done to Iraq and all, uh, Libya as well. So, uh, and just curious, because mm. I like I was always wondering, Poland were actually allies during World War II, you know, and apparently their bombers, their fighter pilots were one of the best in helping, uh, you know, win the war. Yet, here, here you go, Russia, here you go. And, you know, they lost their country. And I didn't realize until a few weeks ago that a lot of the Ukraine was actually Poland and they never got it back, even through yeah, Lviv. Because I'd uh, been to Lviv and I was like, this could be Poland. This yeah. that was about four years ago. And yeah, apparently no, it was Poland. My my wife uh, is writing this this trilogy right now on the deep history of, of Poland and, and Ukraine. And, and it's I'm learning a lot, too, from this uh, East Galicia, as you brought up. It's so rich and complex going back to the Kievan Rus period, you know, a, a thousand plus years ago. And that Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, they all have their roots in the Kievan Rus period, which also overlaps, by the way, the discussion of Khazaria, which which is something I've tried to piece together. But um yeah, no, it's it's complex. It's definitely complex. And there's a big Nazi problem both in, in Ukraine as well as in Poland. Um, the Polish foreign minister was a, a hardcore pro-Nazi figure. There, there, there were patriots in both countries as well as hardcore Nazis. And and as we see today, there there's giant, you know, bronze statues in public squares all over Ukraine of the national hero Stefan Bandera who is a, a hardcore uh, Nazi collaborator and, and hyper ethno-nationalist fascist who wiped out, he oversaw with his or organization for Ukrainian nationalists, he oversaw the, the murder of, of over 100,000 Jews and Poles and uh, Slavs, uh, you know, ethnic Russians, because he had the view, just like Hitler, that, you know, you should have a totally pure race, that what makes your nation a nation is its racial purity, both of of the human gene stock, but also of, of plant life, even like Hermann Goering was, was a Nazi conservation minister, a head of forestries who was, he had a whole assignment to, to make a pure ecosystem and extract all of the foreign contaminants of, of plant life and create these big nature reserves. That was actually the model upon which the later conservation union for nature and, and world wildlife funds utilized and deployed their uh, models of conserving nature in Africa and South America in order to pr largely push an imperial agenda to to justify no development no you cannot build a dam in this zone uh africa because th there's we've calculated that there's this purity this pristine ecosystem that would be disrupted a little, little bit by our, our calculations if you built a dam or, or a water diversion project to green this part of africa so no 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 and that has been a, a an imperial agenda which they want to accelerate under under the great reset under this you know 30 30 program of like 30 percent of the world's surface under conservation protection which means no development i mean for the people running that they actually don't care they, they don't care about nature in fact they're more than willing to just like protect it and then have mining interests go into to mine rare earths for solar panels 
they don't care, <laughs> but they just don't want people to act and nations to actually develop their own resources for the benefit of their people, according to infrastructure. They don't want that. So that's what uh, what Bandera, I mean, was was bringing into Ukraine. That's what was he was made a national hero in 2014. Again, he was first made a national hero in 20 when when Yushchenko, another George Soros stooge, was brought in in 20, 2004 under a, the first color revolution in Ukraine. He was made a national hero. He was taken down from his national hero status by Yanukovych, a pro a pro Russian corrupt guy um, who took back control of Ukraine in 20, 2000. I think it was nine. He basically removed these Nazi uh, criminals from their hero status. And then as soon as he was ousted um, in 20, 2014, they brought him all back in and re-empowered all of the uh, the Azov, C-14, other other Nazi groups and brigades who act kind of like, you know, just Nazi. They're, they're jihadists. They're, they're, they're serving the same role as the ISIS and Al-Qaeda groups had served under the, the sponsorship of Zbigniew Brzezinski and the CIA going back to the early 80s. To fight the Soviets, right? That was that was why there's a, a a problem of radical jihadis in in that part of the world. It's it's that they were sponsored by Operation Cyclone in the late '70s that Zbigniew Brzezinski oversaw that put 500 million dollars of U.S. taxpayer money into radical madrasas, utilizing their Saudi stooges as well to help facilitate the Wahhabist growth, right? Of this idea that our version of Islam is that anybody who doesn't believe in our version of Islam, even if you're Islamic, you get to you get to have your head cut off. And, you know, global uh, caliphate. It, that's why these guys are all, not only a problem in the Middle East, but they're also being sent via Turkey into uh, Ukraine. They're, Vanessa Bealey, who's a, a wonderful British reporter, uh, uh, she's a friend of mine now, on the ground in Syria, in Damascus. She uh, she reported on the, the last article she, I saw her write of the 450 Al-Qaeda ISIS operatives who were brought in. I, I think they're they're from an, uh, an offshoot of called Jabhat al-Nusra and uh, uh, Hayat. Al Sham, it's ISIS. They were they were brought in, 450 of them for the first trench in to fight alongside their Nazi uh, paramilitary uh, brothers, and uh, and the and who else was brought in? The White Helmets, the same group that was given the Academy Award. Ah, Academy Awards coming back in 2018. The, this British operation that uh, was set up by James de Missourier, who was mysteriously thrown naked off of his balcony uh, last year, but he's a, an MI6 operative who set up this this white helmets thing on, in Syria, which has been found at the heart of a bunch of false flag attacks, crisis actors blaming Bashar al-Assad for every horrendous thing that um, ISIS actually did, who they're always working with. And they've been found to even be complicit. Their members have been found to be ISIS members helping to cut off heads. So the fact that they're now on the ground plotting out a, a battle plan and yeah, I've seen so much on that, even the the green screens showing it being done. There was so much that was oh. exposed on that. But, you know, you mentioned the Great Reset. And yeah. I mean, we've heard I call him Anil Schwab instead of Klaus Schwab, but he's he's mentioned. I mean, he said he's got Trudeau and he's got half the Canadian cabinet. But he's yeah. also mentioned like Putin was his puppy. And we know the Ukrainian leader is part of the World Economic Forum. It's the whole lot of pony show and they have everything. They ha they're controlling everybody. And it's just the poor people on the ground that are getting a lot, Look, A lot of this is a side game, okay? I They definitely have half the Canadian cabinet and they definitely have Zelensky. They definitely, 100%. Like, yes. Zelensky even went so far just two days ago. He said, you know, this is a great opportunity, this, this war in Ukraine for Europe to get off of uh, petrochemical uh, hydrocarbons and uh, and go green and have windmills and solar panels. He's like, he's now, this guy in Poland is like, who's a puppet working with Nazis as a Jew, which is weird, uh, lecturing the Europeans who he's wanted 
to set up a no-fly zone to declare war with Russia in order to stop a genocide, which is weird. He's now lecturing them on what a, what an opportunity this is for them to now freeze to death in winter and get off of Russian gas, which, by the way, supplies 40% of the fuel to Europe. I mean, that's not easy to tell. And that, but that also shows you that he's not in control. The Europeans are not operating under their own national interest. The, the people would never accept that. It's, it's, it's something that wants to, that has disdain for people. So you have now the truth of it coming out. I, I, I won't even say anything about the, the Russian Ukrainian or the Russian wheat, which supplies or fertilizers or other, other vital uh, commodities, which supply our physical economy. Yeah, my God, you, you have no idea like what, how much we need Russia, how much more we need them than they need us. Cause they have China, they have India, they have a whole growth market of, of the Middle East and Africa. That's more than happy to fill the vacuum that we're uh, being taken out of or, or that we're creating. But so, yeah, there's, there's a lot of agencies uh, operating on behalf of the Davos crowd and these higher level sociopaths, because even the Davos crowd is a bit of a low level operation. It's kind of like a, a junior micro partner of the Bilderberger groups. Right. Anyway, Klaus Schwab in that speech. Yeah, he, he played him. Can I swear on this channel? No, I can't do that. Of course, eh? of course he, you're good. <laughs> okay, yeah, he pulled a mind fuck. Like he just like threw it out there. He knew, he knew that Putin's Putin has been an attendee of the World Economic Forum, as have many, many people. And in fact, you cannot be a modern politician operating with any position of power if you don't attend meetings run by bad people. It, it's part of the world we live in. And Putin has been an attendee. And more recently, in 2000, I think, six, seven, he started occasionally even giving speeches at, the, at Davos. That's true. Now, does that make him evil or does that make what Klaus Schwab said about him being a World Economic Forum young leader true? No, it does not do that. It's not the same thing. You can you can do it over, like people are oversimplistic sometimes. And they're like, OK, guilty by association pattern. It's called pattern formation thinking, right? Somebody said or did a, a certain series of actions with a certain pattern that map what I define as being a bad pattern. It maps pretty closely. Thus, I'll make a judgment. But, you know, sometimes if, if it has four legs and you can sit on it, it's not necessarily a chair. You'd be like, OK, everything that has four legs and you sit on it is a chair. And it's like, well, that, that looks like a, a walking animal that this person's sitting on. And it's like, no, that I think it's a horse. It's like, no, 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 that's, that's a chair. Right. It, that, that there's a limit to pattern formation thinking. So, no, I mean, Putin has done some in interesting things. He has persuaded. I've followed his career closely. And he has been able to persuade a lot of very evil people since the 90s that he's on their side. And then what you often find is that he takes the, the, the carpet out from under their feet. So that's how he got into power, right? He got a lot of sociopathic billionaires to think he's our guy. Uh, people like George Bush uh, Jr. And, and Dick Cheney were like, all right, we finally got our man in the Kremlin. It's like, <laughs> okay, sure. You thought that. And then what happens? He puts a bunch of Russian oligarchs in prison. <laughs> and for those that want to avoid prison, they get they, they escape and go to sanctuary in uh, London, uh, you know, in Moscow on the Thames or no, uh, what's called London on the Thames. That's that's the the Russian oligarch section of London or Florida, where they've, they've some of them have avoided going to prison. Some of them some of them chose to become to play by the new rules that Putin and, and the network of nationalists that that he represents put on the table, which is, you know, you can keep it's like what China said to Jack Ma, you know, you, you can keep your billions. But you got to play by the rules. You can't. You cannot go renegade, and you can't act against the, the national interest of our country, or else. And the or else is how many how many people have gone to prison in China for being on the payroll of the CIA, George Soros, and and being foreign agents. A lot of people.
since Xi Jinping came in, it's been the biggest crackdown in history since 2012 of all of these foreign operations. And I think part of the, the I wrote an article, a three-part series on um, the surveillance state and social credit as uh, distasteful necessities in an age of asymmetrical warfare. The fact is China has been targeted for destruction for a long time. And if you look at the amount of penetration that had made it through, there was a reason why George Soros, even though today George Soros was saying China needs to overthrow, they need, we need to have a regime change against Xi Jinping in China. Back in 2010, he was saying China is the uh, the role model for what we want the world to be because they like they like the aspect of, of centralized control. They like that part of it. They like the, the social credit stuff. They like that. Everything that China is doing economically to lift people out of poverty or to stop the wars in the Middle East or, or beyond, they hate that part. So they only like that specific part of their control freaks. That's all they want. Um, what would China have been had they not been targeted for all of these asymmetrical warfare operations? Would We'll never know what they would have done if that wasn't the agenda. But that is the agenda, as it was for Russia, to balkanize, destroy them, carve them up, and bring them under a one-world depopulated government. So they've been fighting against that. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is... Excellent. Listen, I, I'd love to talk to you for hours, but I, I don't want to be taking the stage off, Jane, so I'll pass you over to Jane. Okay. Yeah, I wish I had your brain. I wish I could just... Because <laughs> like you, it was 9-11 that I began to question everything. Yeah. But, you know, you go on with your life, you're trying to help people, you don't have the time to dig like this, and yeah. it's just mind-blowing. I know. I guess what I really... I. I want to know what you think, where we are in this great reset. Like you can feel this bubble that could burst any moment. And, mm. and I also am like just trying to get my head around these different deep states. And you can feel that China has been a big part of what's happened in the whole pandemic and that Canada is possibly owned by China practically, but I can't get my head around the deep state of China, the deep state of Russia, who's running who, like it's just. Okay, anyway. all right. <laughs> what I'm gonna do, first of all, um, I'm gonna send you guys PDFs that you can download of, of volume one and volume two. And, and when volume three comes out, which volume three is gonna go more in depth into the, uh, the current configuration of these fifth columns in China and Russia, a little bit of their history, what they are today, the pushback, um, just to help people map it out. I've been trying to help the, the Chinese and the Russians, uh, my friends there, to understand the complexity of the fifth columns in America. And now I'm, I'm sort of finding myself as a bridge on the other side, try to help my American friends and Canadian friends understand the, the fifth column operations there, you know? So it's uh, helping people just to appreciate <laughs> the nuance and the humanity on both sides. Because Matthew, what is a fifth column? A fifth like, column is just a deep state. It's another, it's, okay, it's before okay. there was the word deep state, there was the word fifth column. That's all, you know. Okay. Uh, and um, that's. Um, so is it the fifth column because there's like the four legged chair and then there's the fifth? Like, you know, Jane, you're putting me on the spot. I, I got to say, <laughs> Sorry, I, don't, I, don't, okay. I don't know the origins. <laughs> Maybe, uh, uh, I'd love to know. That's a good question. Yeah. Where's that root come from? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. But. I had written in 2012 an article um, where I was trying to piece in my mind. That was the days of Stephen Harper. And I, I was running the, this new magazine that I, I'd started called the Canadian, the Canadian Patriot Review. So issue number two, I was trying to piece together 
the strategy of the British imperial global great game in regards to resources and resource development and extraction in Canada, because Canada has always been a pawn within a broader global great game. There's a global chemistry. It's wrong to think of Canada as an isolated thing that so many analysts tend to do. They do the same thing for America. And it's like, no, you, you always have to look at the whole chemistry first, the whole periodic table, and then you can sort of make sense of the individual elements, right? And, and the role that they play within other uh, molecular binding and other things, right? But there's a whole that has to be in mind. And people have been induced increasingly to get myopic and lose sense of the context. So anyway, in this article, Harper had just facilitated the purchasing, and I'm forgetting the details, it was a long time ago, of a major uh, oil interest in Alberta, and, and I think it overlapped with BC, um, to a Chinese firm, uh, a huge, huge interest. And I, I could see that there had been um, negotiations between China and Russia at that time over natural gas and oil exports to China that China desperately needed for their development. They don't have that much in the way of oil. Russia has a lot, so much, uh, but they don't have a lot of infrastructure. I mean, it's better now, but they didn't have a lot of infrastructure to tap uh, a lot of their oil you know, it requires, uh, these pipelines are not easy to build, uh, especially for natural gas and and roads and r rail and everything else. Like the, you have to have infrastructure. It's not enough just to have oil in your land. It's look at, look at Canada, right? We're super rich, but we have no willy, no ability to, to use any of it. Conservation land, part of that. So anyway, I was like, well, what's the deal there? What do, do they, is the, is the British oligarchy really in bed with China that they were able to give them this this really good deal because compared to what Russia was offering, this was way cheaper. And Harper just cut through decades worth of environmental bureaucratic red tape. He just cut through it with the help of the Privy Council office in one shot just to make this deal uh, go through. Because China was like, well, if you got all this environmental red tape, we don't want to buy any interest in, in Canada because it could just be turned off easily and we can't use it. So he just cut through it. He canceled it. David Suzuki and others were like flipping out, having a, having a, a conniption fit. And I'm like, what the hell is that all about? And then the thesis came together. It's a honeypot. So what the British had been trying to do was at the time, a uh, poll, this is before Xi Jinping. They were trying to attract China to become addicted to Anglo-Canadian minerals and resources for their development needs. With the idea that by doing that and making it super incentivized, like really financially profitable for them to do that, instead of going to Russia, that they would pull them away from the dangerous alliance of Russia and China. That's the thing that always scared the oligarchy is that Eurasian combination that would then bring in Pakistan, India, Iran, which is now what we're seeing. But they didn't want that. So and then the idea would be, OK, once you have the Eurasian landmass sufficiently divided to be better conquered, right, you don't have any unified uh, program that now now we can then turn off the taps at our will. It's our terms where in the future we can then say, okay, sorry, uh, we can't let you have any more of this, uh, you know, and then bring them down, bring them to their knees. And that's always been the idea of like energy geopolitics has, has been, this is why the people like Zelensky are being told to sell windmill and solar power energy as part of a green new deal for the great reset. It's because the, the, the relationship between energy and quality of energy density to human population is a, has a direct combination. You cannot sustain 8 billion people with low quality. Um, there's an economist in America who recently passed away called Lyndon LaRouche. He put, uh, he could, he defined this quite well, that the energy flux density, the, 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 the quality of the organized form of the, the electricity, the electron behavior you can get by accumulating sun power on photovoltaic cells or, or just simply 
spinning a windmill when the wind blows will not allow you to have much more than a billion, maybe two billion people, and you could not sustain industrial activity. The type of, of industrial melting of steel, of processing of, 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 of cement you, you require to, to maintain that population is insufficient. You can't even make a windmill with windmill energy. You cannot make solar panels, which involves the mining operations. Energy intensive. You can't make them with, wind, with solar panel energy. They're not sustainable. They're not renewable energies because of that very uncomfortable fact. So this is, this is the thing. Um, so Canada has a lot of it. We're also hyper-controlled as people came to discover with the, the recent two-year insanity of pandemic and then the convoy. Uh, it's a highly, it's not a democracy. It's a highly controlled privy council steered operation beholden to interests that are not even Canadian. They're, they're, they're above nations, but they're centered geographically in London. But they're even above London. They don't care about the British people or the British parliament. There's good parliamentarians. <laughs> so it's, a, it's this power above, above nations. And so in the case of China, they still had been trying up until I think really 2019 was the last time they were really pushing to say to Canada, like, let's, how about we invest in infrastructure for you guys? Let's, let's work on the Belt and Road Initiative together because the British wants to keep Canada as a role model for the world. We're highly, we're one of the biggest land masses of a nation with the lowest population density imaginable. I think it's like three people per square mile. We only have like seven cities all strung across like the U.S. border. That's 90% of our population is just like within 70 miles of the U.S. border. We've got no development. That's the ideal for a British oligarch, a control freak wanting a very low population for the world. It's Canada. And politically, we've got a very high degree of illusion of of democracy and a very low degree of reality of of real democracy. So they like that, that, that ratio. And so for them, that's a great idea for a federalized world government with little micro nations, with micro democracies that, that actually have no power under a one world sort of League of Nations style superstructure. So China, I think overall, when I look at their behavior, they have been trying to get the best out of Canada to get Canada to, they even offered to like invest in, in hardcore infrastructure to help us reindustrialize. That's sort of what Trump was doing with China too, with his US-China trade deal. Uh, people forget that he, he saved China by, by canceling the Trans-Pacific Partnership in 2016, which is a world government agenda that put corporations into a dominant position over nations and isolated China from any of its Pacific neighbors. So Trump killed it first act in office. And then he negotiated not only destroying NAFTA by putting the sovereign nation state back into a position where it could have a role in the economy under NAFTA that destroyed 2 million American jobs, productive jobs. There was no role. It was illegal for the nation state to play a role in the economy under Trump's U.S.-China, uh, sorry, U.S.-Mexico-Canadian agreement, the nation state was allowed to do protectionism again. That's vital. If you're going to be a sovereign nation, you need protectionism. You need to have a say over, over the economic destiny of your people. Otherwise, it's corporations who will determine that and bankers who don't care about those things. So then he went and negotiated with China so that China would buy up for the first tranche $350 billion in 2020 of U.S. finished goods from a, a rehabilitated Detroit, Philadelphia, other Rust Belts. This is the sort of offer that China had been making to Canada to help us rebuild Windsor, Ontario, all of our, our shutdown uh, machine tools. And we had, our, our Privy Council office had kept on saying, no, 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 we don't need that. We just want to give you oil and that's it. We don't want to develop our, our manufacturing again. We worked very hard to shut it down. Uh, we're not going to find an excuse to rebuild it. And then it became clear when uh, Justin Trudeau in 2018 went to China to finalize a, or 20, end of 2017, 
to finalize the U.S.-China trade free trade agreement, which was like a long time coming. And uh, he was iced out. He got off the plane. He was going. He was going there to celebrate, like being this great hero who made this big, great historic deal. Nobody met him. He was just like, "What?" <laughs> he, he had like some janitor sitting at the tarmac, <laughs> and they they basically put him back on the plane, embarrassed as a great as a message that look, we're, we know what you are. We know what the role of Canada is in this imperial great game, and we're not playing that game. And it was right after that that the Privy Council vetoed the agreement to buy the defunct Acon, Acon Incorporated, the, the biggest Canadian or the, the third biggest Canadian construction agency that had gone bankrupt because we're not building anything in Canada. It was called Acon Inc. And there had been agreements for China to, to own and operate Canada's construction company. It, it can make tunnels. It can make anything. It can uh, decommission a nuclear plant. It can build a new one. It can build hydroelectric dams. It has like great specialization, but it hasn't been doing anything. And so it went bankrupt. And so China which likes building things was like, okay, we'll buy it. <laughs> and all of the, the agreements had been put in, into stone. Um, it was being finalized. The shareholders were happy because finally we were going to be able to do things not only in Canada, but build infrastructure in Africa. Cause we're part of now an international co like complex of firms building the belt and road initiative, which the last time a Canadian firm did that, keep in mind that built something like that, that was BRI friendly was SNC Lavalin, which was commissioned to work with Gaddafi to build the great man-made water project in, in Libya. That was that was a Canadian Montreal based firm that was all of its work was destroyed under NATO. Um, that was a direct sign. I, I think the current scandal that had just happened a couple of years ago with SNC Lavalin was designed partially because they had a lot of economic ties to China. Um, they were building a couple of Chinese nuclear power plants, um, things like that. So that was dismantled. And I think the current governance of SNC Lavalin are, are technocratic ideologues. They don't want to build anything. Um, so the same thing happened for Acon, and the Privy Council intervened directly and said, "No, this is a national security threat. We're not going to permit the purchase of Acon Inc. to China." And to this very day, a Acon Inc. is just like melting away. This great potential we capability we had, if we actually are going to rebuild our, our infrastructure, which we desperately need to do. It's been 50 years of atrophy. We have nothing that is sol like it's not solvent. You need a lot of work to bring it back to safety safety standards. You need to have Acon if if that's if so. There's all of these things, and there's a lot of psyop. Um, but no, I don't think China necessarily runs the policies of Canada. They got economic interests, but they don't. They're not. There's a, a, a power above that that is not Chinese, which is also why you know the Canadian government was so unanimous in pushing. Uh, the condemnation of China over the Uyghurs and, and other things. Like, I mean, we're, we're, we're promoting the encirclement of China, which has also been going on by the United States military industrial complex. There's 100,000 U.S. troops around China's perimeter in the Pacific with U.S. military missile shields in South Korea, 50,000 U.S. troops in Japan with a, a fascist government. I mean, the, the Japanese government, just like the Ukrainians, uh, sees the Japanese fascists of World War II as, war, as, as heroes of their nation. The Abe just called for having nuclear weapons in Japan pointed at China. So, so Matthew, wait. Yeah, yeah sure. <laughs> Who is above that? Uh, you got a financier oligarchy that kind of brings in. I liked. I, I brought up Larouche art just once in this conversation, but I, I liked his definition of the oligarchy because it's a very shadowy idea, right? What do you? What do people mean? Um, he he likened it he said the best way to think about this is the the fourth phase of the roman empire so the same families you got a sort of inbred coterie of bloodlines that 
feel pride that they can trace their lineages back to the Roman Senate and Empire. And when Rome collapsed, because this is a parasite that can only destroy its host. So when Rome collapsed, the host collapsed. It's not like the oligarchy, the parasite benefited. Um, look at what they did. They scrambled to try to like reorganize themselves. Some of them went to Constantinople. A lot of them went to Byzantine. Uh, sorry, a lot of them went to sorry Venice. Venice, the lagoons became the center of world commerce, bullion and silver trade. Uh, the world maritime shipping was controlled by Venice for like 800 years. That became the center of evil. Um, its ambassadors and intelligence agencies were the, the most sophisticated intelligence network in the world that had profiled. You can even read the dispatches of the Venetian ambassadors. It's still available in archives and some of, the, some of it is online. Very rigorous at mapping out the different courts, the doing psychological profiles of different uh, people with influence within courts, within you know kingdoms, that they would all report back to. They they because of their control of shipping, they had the control also of post postal services for much of the 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 you know European world. Um, they had access to the Mongol uh, territories. They were behind. They were the financial backers behind the Crusades to create these clashes of civilizations. They're the ones who uh, worked with Genghis Khan and and his children. They were the only Western power given licenses to operate within mongol controlled territories and i'm sure that that was being done in exchange for intelligence that they were giving to the mongols because you're like how do these these low level people these these mongol hordes take over so many sophisticated kingdoms all over the world so quickly uh, they don't they, they did that because they had guidance they had a, a hand helping them um so they were sort of like the the, the persian marcher lord for babylon uh, back in the day that's sort of the role that they were playing or the role that the, that the U.S. has played since World War II as the martial lord for the British oligarchy, the British intelligence after Roosevelt died. It's the martial lord to do the dirty work, but the real power has never been American. Right. That's what JFK was trying to resist when he fired Alan Dulles. Right. Um, or what Reagan was resisting when a little bit when he got shot in 1981 and calling so for, you know. Mm -hmm. So these families that come from Rome, Venice, they're the ones that are really running Oh, yeah. The politicians and what's going I mean, on. Well, here's the thing. I mean, there's a complex built around them. So there's a there's a sort of um, you can call it shadow government They're Like, look at the Privy Council office is one example of it. There, there's something above the official democratic institutions of government that were mostly built up by people fighting for our, our, our emancipation and freedom. But then there's this other thing which has like, you know, listen to Justin Trudeau's oath of office to get into the Privy Council, you know, that I will keep all things secret that are duly uh, expected to be kept secret by Her Majesty, my master, the Queen, you know, like, and, and her heirs. Um, and I will do all things that a good servant of Her Majesty should. Like, this is a, a head of so-called head of state, you think? So the, the crown itself is known as the fount of all honors. So whether it's in their control of there's a variety of Masonic orders like the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem or the Knights of St. St. Michael and St. George. Uh, there's a, a whole variety Knight, Knights of the Order of Bath. Uh, these different lodges, which have at their heart at the 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 the, the top of the pyramid, so-called the crown, whatever whatever person happens to be sitting in that position, born into that unfortunate position. They're the fount of all honors means that the authority to respect the honors of or the legally binding nature of whatever is agreed upon by the rules of those systems comes from the personage of the, the, the bloodline of the crown. In this case, the house of Saxe-Kibbegotha, uh, AKA Windsor. Um, 
and and so it's not the person themselves like i think the queen is a very smart in a sense not not moral but a very well briefed person she's been very well briefed by privy council proceedings and other things for a long time but she's not a determinant of anything there's a whole structure around the privy council uh, built up around her around the fondies these old trusts of wealth that have been sort of passed on from generation to generation sometimes a new family is allowed to be brought in as a sort of like a mercenary family um and are given certain dynastic privileges but even those you could just find like look at the uh, an example is the bronfman family right of which samuel bronfman was brought in as an immigrant from eastern europe in the 1890s he was a bootlegger he uh he was a bit of a sociopath. He did his job well, really well. He was given dangerous tasks that he he accomplished on behalf of the empire, especially during prohibition. He built up a criminal syndicate in Canada that then was replicated in the United States when the U.S. got their prohibition. So it, it was all part of like a calculation. And he was rewarded and made a member of the Knights of the Order of Both um, for services rendered. And and he was his family, the Bronfmans, were given a sort of dynastic mini dynastic privilege where even today, like Justin Trudeau's advisor has been uh, Stephen Bronfman. You know, Charles Bronfman is still the, the father, uh, is a privy councillor of Canada. Even though he's not a member of government, he's a privy councillor. So, you know, you got these mini dynastic privileges. You got slightly older mini, mini dynasty uh, families, mercenary families, like I would say the Rothschilds would be another one of these like slightly older, but still kind of new blood mini dynasties that were brought in in the 1750s. You know, by Mayor, you know, Mayor, Mayor Amschel Rothschild was like a coin dealer who, again, was given certain tasks. He did them well. He didn't have a conscience bothering him. He trained his kids well to, to be uh, uh, servants of the empire, to know their place, to know their, their role and privileges. And uh, in return, he was given greater access to power, but always by the orders of something on higher. And, you know, these, these, these are groups that if you look at their their family lineages, they're never allowed to marry up into certain families. Like you could look at Brooks, the Brooks Book of Peerage, which sort of is a, an annual book that sort of maps out the different royal families. They make it public. They're proud of it. They think that their blood is superior anyway. So why should they not be proud of it? But it never contaminates with some of these, you know, useful idiots or not even any useful smart people. And this thing brings up again the Kazaria thing because it's like, well, what was Kazaria? Right. What would people there's a lot that's been written over a long time over the Kazarian mafia, the center of evil, the, the sort of like Mordor. Right. It's like a cartoonish idea when you hear people talking about Kazaria. It's like Mordor from Lord of the Rings, uh, where there's just these orcs who just want to like rape and kill and turn you into a slave. And and that's just their their genetic nature is to be evil. Again, Mordor. It's really not that uh, this is actually a chapter in my book, um, and I'm going to give the talk on this thing. The center of evil at that time, the time of especially the 7, 8, 9th century AD, um, that was Venice. That was not, Kazaria was an, a Turkic kingdom that had converted to Judaism with certain conditions. So there was, for from about 760 AD all the way until this kingdom was dismantled. We don't fully know. Like there's been such an effort to erase traces of this of this kingdom's existence it's 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 crazy, but we know for about 200 years it was a power, and it had arranged an ecumenical alliance between Christian the the uh, the Carolingian Empire of Charlemagne, which was largely an Augustinian dynasty that had been set up by Pepin the Great in seventeen in seven fifty, 
and his son Charlemagne was the unifier of Europe. So, I mean, there, Europe then was different from Europe today. There was no states. It was just like Charlemagne's dynasty. And he was, it was a Christian dynasty. It was, again, Augustinian. They had te- like a big focus on teaching orphans, teaching kids, mass education, internal improvements, canals were being built, like the Lorraine uh, Canal that uh, da Vinci later on worked on. That was started under Charlemagne. But it was also done with an ecumenical international strategy where he had an alliance with Harun al-Rashid of uh, the, the, the Abbasid dynasty of, uh, uh, in Baghdad. So that was where the Holy Land was located. And there was a lot of effort to try to spark a, a crusade by, the again, the, the Roman families, the, the Roman imperial families that were then based in, in the lagoons of Venice. And Charlemagne and, and Harun al-Rashid were working very hard to, to not fall into this Christian versus Islam clash of civilizations trap. And uh, one great story was of Harun, who, again, that was sort of like a, a, a platonic academy zone. They had the houses of wisdom where Jews and Christians and Muslims were all brought together. There were some Chinese as well to study astronomy, study the ancient classics together. That was, the, that was where all of the ancient works of, of Homer and Plato were, were rediscovered and translated, right? In, um, in, by, Bag, by, by the scholars at Baghdad. And also there was the southern part of, of Spain. Um, most of Spain at the time, Cordoba and all of that, that was also part of the Islamic Renaissance period. So they had this whole ecumenical alliance and the Jewish area of Khazaria, which is today's Ukraine, a big chunk of Russia, um, that converted, they actually didn't, <laughs> they had an interesting setup where they were the zone of the Silk Road, the what's called the Steppes Silk Road. So the, the Tang Dynasty, which had just recovered from its own Dark Age. So in 650, there was the, the Tang Dynasty in China that had recovered uh, Confucianism after about 400 years of civil war and Dark Age, when the when the earlier dynasty of the, the, the Han collapsed. And with that revival of Confucianism became also a revival of commerce and trade with the East, uh, the West. And so the Silk Road was revived and the Silk Road was a trade zone all the way through the Middle East into Christian Europe and also a branch through Russia or today's Russia uh, through Khazaria. And it brought, I mean, innovations in paper making, other inventions, discoveries. It was a real like pollinator of creative discoveries and also the idea of peace treaties. So everybody was negotiating peace treaties instead of going to war with each other. That was very important. And in Khazaria, um, King Bulan, who was sort of the the mythical uh, king that that oversaw the the conversion of the of the court, at least to Judaism, set up a very interesting judicial uh, governance structure where he had two Christians, two Muslims, two Jews, one uh, uh, pagan. Time, you know, Greek paganism was still a thing, who would be the, the head judges of the courts. They would be the ones to decide the laws. So it was a good cross-pollination of a variety of, of faiths. And the military was, the, he had no military. He actually had a treaty with the, um, the Muslims of uh, Harun al-Rashid to have uh, five or was it 10,000 Muslim soldiers who would be living in Khazaria as the defense force for that kingdom. So it was a very interesting coalition. Charlemagne also had an area of Narbonne in the south, which was uh, a, an area that uh, that he made ecumenical with a, a Jewish king and, and one of his own daughters that he married uh, to her to create another ecumenical alliance in that kingdom. Um, so it was a really incredible complex. And we've seen a lot of evidence come out. There's been some historians who lived on the ground, some geographers in the time whose, whose writings have survived, like the Meadows of Gold by... Uh, 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 oh, 
I'm forgetting the names now, but it's in my book. Anyway, that was all crushed. And what happened by 980 or so, like Charlemagne's kingdom got turned into a corrupt basket case. His grandkids fell for Venetian traps like the Oath of Strasbourg that carved up all of the, the Europe into these like four warring kingdoms where each kid wanted their own like territory, right? And uh, and they basically all teamed up on, on Lothar, the, the idiot kid in the middle who was given like this, this middle zone, which has been at the heart of a lot of the orchestrated wars between France and Germany to this very day. So if you want to understand a lot of the psychological issues of Europe and like how these wars and psychological divides have been created artificially to get brothers to fight brother for so long by the Venetians, you got to go back to Charlemagne's idiot grandkids who carved up Europe and created the foundations for the current borders and cultural divisions. But they, they illegalized. You had the laws passed first in Venice to, to ban in, in like 980 any Jew from having um, the right to, to sail, to be part of any commercial activity on ships, um, to be part of any type of merchant class, or to be part to have skills in farming or any type of trade, or to be part of a guild. You couldn't if you were a Jew. You couldn't do business with a ship that was carrying a Jew. So there was like a consorted effort to carve out Kazaria because I think it did play a very important geopolitical role in the, the great game of the world. And um, and then it was replicated in Germany and the, the, the a whole bunch of other countries replicated the Venetian policies that turned Jews into basically they were allowed to do uh, financial transactions. They were allowed to be like, you know, the, the court accountants and bankers or they could do uh, uh, used cloth sales. So that was like all you're allowed to do or, or, or beg. Um, so that, that sort of channeled over generations, the, the, many of the, the Jews into very, very slim lines of work that they were permitted to do on behalf of their nominally Christian overlords who were not allowed to do usury. So, but usury is a part of empire. So how do you do usury? If you're calling yourself a Christian, not allowed to do usury, well, you use your court Jews, you know, and you, you deploy them. And, yeah. uh, and people who get hurt by the usury, by the economic warfare, end up focusing on who's carrying out, who's hitting them with the bat, who's hurting them, and not who's deploying the people hurting them. And they lose sight. And so you get this scarecrow that's been created for, for centuries, that's been placed for all of us to hate. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's inflamed. It's been inflamed, you know, yeah. it was inflamed by Napoleon's controllers. It was inflamed by... The, the the MI6 operatives who wrote or the, the British intelligence operatives who, who wrote the Protocols of Zion as a forgery. Like if you read the Protocols of Zion, my God, what a joke. Like it reads like a comic book. Nobody nobody with power talks like that. Yes, we're about to take over the world. Next phase. This. It's like nobody talks like that. It was done for really dumb people like like Tsar Nicholas II and Hitler who like read that and they're like, oh my God, we have to do something to destroy the, you know. And it, it worked to create um, a, a good, a useful yeah. paranoia of the Jews, which which justified pogroms, mass kills occasionally, and things like that. And today's, anyway, it's, it's all over the place today. Yeah. <laughs> but you can see these threads that are that exist today, oh, yeah. that have been here for hundreds of years. It's, While, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. But again, it's the cartoonish thing, like Mordor. It's people treat yeah. Kazaria like it's Mordor, and it's like. No, there's something you're missing context. There's this whole universal history. You're just you're you're pretending history just started with Kazaria all of a sudden creating the 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 Rothschilds who wanted to just dominate the world because they're Talmudic Jews who hate uh, anybody who's not Jew. 
Like it's so overly simplistic and cartoonish and people fall for it in it. Ah, anyway, yeah. So, so, and you said there were two agendas that were kind of clashing, depopulation and something else like. Open versus closed systems. So uh, you know, like, yeah, like, so is there hope that we'll come out of this? Oh, yeah, 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 for sure. No, I mean, there's a, I, I just gave a, an interview. I do a weekly show called uh, The Great Game on Rogue News. I, I got another a bit of time. Don't worry. I, I had a cancellation, so it's it's fine. Last time for anybody listening, I, I had to like abrasively just receive a call and 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 break the the interview like midway, and I felt bad. Yeah, so I, I break down an analysis of Sergei Glazyev's recent interview, um, and Glazyev is such an important Russian figure. Um, he's the Minister of Eurasian Economic Integration, a Putin advisor. And he uh, developed in the course of a long interview. I, I took section, sections that we just broke down and discussed his um, program that he has put on the table for a, a divergent new economic order. But it's a very different set of, of ideas and concepts than the one we've, we've seen destroy the world for so long. His is based largely on an idea. He's very, very clear of the need to overcome limits to growth, that any economic system that has any validity has to be both capable of coherence, of co of making a very complex system of a nation and multiple nations cohere under a common policy, which runs you into the, the danger of being a, a tyranny, right? Because as soon as you go for central controls, you run the danger now of destroying creativity and spontane spontaneity. It becomes easily crystallizable and inflexible. That's sort of the, the problem of empire always. And that's why empires destroy because they destroy the creative thought needed to justify their own existence, right? They, so it's, it's an irony. They, they, they like using the fruits of creativity, but they can't create creativity. So they'll use electric. I don't think any oligarch would be happy without electricity, but they couldn't have produced the quality of minds of a Ben Franklin to discover electricity or the other millions of minds to find applications for it. They can't do that. They could take discoveries that are made and try to pervert them to enslave, but they can't make more, more discoveries. So Glazio goes in depth into his understanding of the need for both freedom, creativity, and also multipolarity, that you cannot have just one center of command. You have to have multiple centers of dialogue. Of it. So it's different from the one world government, a unipolar versus multipolar idea. The idea of, of technology, let's say you're talking about fourth industrial revolution. Okay, most people at this point hear that and they're like, okay, that's evil. And it is. <laughs> it is. Klaus Schwab wrote a book on it. And um, what does that mean? What are the technologies that they typically talk about? They're talking about automation, the replacement of human labor with increasing reliance on machine labor. They're talking about AI um, in the form of machine learning. They're talking about 3D printing. They're talking about quantum computing primarily. Okay. And they're saying overall, the application of these new technologies will, uh, the internet of things, that's the other one, right? The internet of things, your, your house can talk to you and like read your vital signs and shit. <laughs> Okay, so let's say we're talking about these basic technologies. Are these, obviously, if they are used by a eugenics transhumanist religious ideology of evil, they will always be used to enslave and hurt you, guaranteed. Does that mean that those technologies being discussed are themselves intrinsically bad? I think a tool can be a tool, you know, it can a, a, a hammer can help you build a house or, or kill your neighbor. So like machine learning, Okay, that's something that's like a new innovation. It's not going to go away. It's like, okay, you can program machines to encounter things that it 
that the programmer didn't realize that the machine might encounter. Let's say you're doing a mining operation deep, like 10, 10 kilometers underground, right? You don't want to put human beings down there, but what are you going to encounter 10 kilometers underground? We've never been more than like five. So, or no, I think we've been 12, but you might encounter a lot of things we don't know. So it would be nice to have like an algorithm within a machine that could like maybe not just do the same mistake again and again and again until it, it, it's destroyed, but can maybe like modify its behavior. It doesn't mean it's going to make a discovery because machines are still limited by what the programmer puts in, but it can make like it, it can make quantitative adjustments based upon things that it, it encounters. Uh, that's why machines can get better at chess. It can learn from its mistakes, right? It has a certain capacity of memory. It cannot create a better game of chess, right? That's the, the, it can't do that. So it's still limited by the confines of the game, but it can get better. So there's certain rules of mining or certain rules of basic, there's certain types of basic medical surgeries that maybe I can imagine a form of computer learning having some usefulness in, in maybe, I don't know, or, or let's say space technology, right? You don't want to put human beings on, uh, on manning a, a lunar research center or Mars research center for a long time. They're, that's very dangerous for human beings to do that. There's solar radiation. There's all sorts of cosmic rays that can hurt and kill humans. Um, we don't have solutions for. So you really don't want to have humans. It would be nice to have like an automated system mostly that would take that, uh, the you know, that would go there for a long time before we figure out how do you terraform Mars or protect, you know, humans on such a, such a body. That might be a, a century in the future that we figure that stuff out. So, you know, okay. Automated learning, automation. Do, do people really, there's so many jobs that are repetitive, that, that are mind numbing, repetitive jobs that I think, you know, a machine could probably do that human could spend their time better, you know, developing their, their creative, artistic, intellectual talents instead of just doing an, an, an eight or 12 hour a day repetitive task. Okay. That, that's not intrinsically bad. Um, the internet, that's not bad. Maybe genetic modification. I, I am starting to have issues with CRISPR, but, but quantum computing, that's not bad. I mean, so 3D printing, that's super useful. You know, you could build all sorts of cool things really, really effectively uh, and, and efficiently with 3D printing. So there's a big fight over what will be the, the operating system in which these technologies exist. Because they will, they will, if we don't go into a nuclear war in dark age, if we avoid that fate, then these technologies will be the next phase of human humanity's creative evolution. As, you know, the forces of mind become more of an active rather than passive thing. Most of human human history, we've been beasts on a on a feudal lord's plantation, without developing access to our higher sentiments, our higher thinking. That uh, you know, that's just the way we had we went through that process for a long time. And so now we we can have increasingly a society that relies less on physical brute labor as what defines us, and more about our mental creative activities, which is great, you know. But it requires that we use these tools with wisdom and responsibly. Um, so I think, again, when you look at Sergey Glazyev's speech, uh, his interview, and or you could listen first maybe to my, my coverage of it and my breakdown of it, it's a good intro to the, the quality of thinking that you have on that side of the Iron Curtain that you do not get with any of the medio mediocre sociopaths talking about like their grand designs for what the world should be in our side of the Iron Curtain. It's so low level. Like we have such... <laughs> we have such a, a, a bad set of, of representatives or managers who are, who are trying to shape our world into this dystopic fantasy land versus, again, the quality of thinking you get there is, is different. 
So I think it's more multipolar. It's more based upon an idea of open systems versus closed systems. Here, the, the computer models of 1 billion people, it's a closed system. There's no permission for creative introduction of anything which upsets the equilibrium of the system um, in the West. That's the Klaus Schwab Great Reset version. In the multipolar system, it's very much open. It's open in the sense that it's constantly both encouraging, incubating new discoveries. China's putting 45% of their, their GDP into the real economy. And that includes high-tech science, cutting-edge breakthroughs, and their application, 45%. In the West, it's far below 15%. And most of that's even going to just bailing out Wall Street banks. We're not putting any of it into the real economy. So they, they have programs for, I, I said it before, they've got five different magnetic levitation rail systems being built up, the most advanced cities integrated. I mean, they've got you can get better quality internet in the, the mountains of Tibet nowadays than you can in uh, Montreal. Um, they got high-speed rail into the Xinjiang province um, with new industrial hubs growing in 40,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. 40,000. We got zero in Canada. And they got a space program to, to have a Russia-China joint research colony, not colony, sorry, research center on the moon by 2030. So it's very much open system. Do you, do you think it's a little bit disturbing in that the they're they're raging ahead and they also think they're a pure race you know so well um there's not this i mean the, china is is a multi-ethnic country you know like the five stars in the chinese flag the big one is the han uh which is the majority it's like 90 percent or 85 percent han chinese and then each of the smaller stars are the the smaller ethnic groups muslims and uh, Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist, and, and other. I don't see any example of any type of racial targeting. Like I mentioned, when they did their one-child policy in uh, China under uh, Soros's uh, operations and Kissinger, it was it was the Han Chinese who were targeted for the one-child thing. The uh, the other groups, the other ethnic ethnic groups that were not Han, were allowed to have as many kids as they wanted. Which is why today there's 2.5 times more Uyghur, uh, Muslim Uyghur Chinese than there were in 1977. They never put the constraints on other populations. It was only their own, <laughs> which is the opposite of genocide, if you ask me. And also the 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 per capita GDP of the, the Uyghurs has increased something like a hundredfold um, over the course of the past 50 years. The, the, the longevity, if you want to look at that variable, it's now at 69 years of age on average versus 1949, it was 38. Same similar uh, variables for Tibet as well. It's up to seventy years of age on average. Back when, uh, when it was the uh, the Nazi, the Nazis loved the Tibetans for a reason. That that propaganda movie with Brad Pitt, remember, uh, seven years in Tibet. That was a true story. The Nazis, uh, uh, the Nazis had a real fetish for the Tibetans, and uh, and the Dalai Lama. He was trained by a leading Nazi, and his brother worked directly as a paramilitary leader for the CIA during the 1950s and 60s. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it's not this nice, we're all given as, as Westerners, this like nice veneer of like the totally peaceful Dalai Lama. No, 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 no. There's this whole other thing <laughs> that so, used like, yeah, anyway. Do you, think, do you think the Chinese had any role with the pandemic because it came out of China? Like uh, Well, I think that China has been treating the pandemic since the very beginning as they've been in sort of like a DEFCON 2 type situation of, um, uh, is that the right one, DEFCON 2? The one where you're in like war preparedness mode. They've been treating it like a, a U.S., under the hypothesis that this is likely a U.S. controlled bioweapon 
that could do a genetic targeting of their Han Chinese gene stock, which has been on the books by the, the neocons, the Project for New American Century since uh, October 2020, uh, 2000, was the... Uh, Rebuilding America's Defenses report, authored by Paul Wolfowitz and a variety of other, uh, a Kagan was involved too, uh, Victoria Newlands' brother-in-law, um, where they literally call out that you know the the warfare of the 21st century, under the you know the the it's a new American century, right? So the the, the forms of warfare will be primarily biological warfare with a new technology that allows us to target. I'm paraphrasing, but not very much. Target direct ethnicities. Uh, using pathogens after the U.S. did their little um, inside job uh, of the anthrax, you know, the anthrax attacks, that was actually an inside job. It wasn't some, they had a low-level uh, Lee Harvey Oswald type that they threw under the bus, an FBI, you know, low-level guy who had access to Fort Detrick, who they said, oh yeah, he watched like Al-Qaeda videos and got radicalized and he started sending like weaponized anthrax to policymakers. No, 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 no. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that that was an inside job. And uh, it was done to justify Dick Cheney's BioShield Act of 2004, which amplified an already existing biosecurity apparatus, bioweapons apparatus, from being something bad to being something s worse than sin. Uh, $50 billion was put into uh, an array of international, I think the current estimates are something like 300 internationally controlled US Pentagon bio, bio labs mostly around Russia and China's perimeter. A lot of them are in Ukraine. Russia has commandeered, um, I think, all of them. A lot of them are around China. And uh, one of them, that's also tied to Hunter Biden's laptop. Hunter Biden had funded an operation called Metabiota, which had uh, been run by a figure who is a World Economic Forum young leader and is a military contractor that supplied all of the, or most of the supplies for the U.S. biolabs in Georgia and Ukraine. So, Increasingly, since Victoria Newland recently made her her famous admission, right at, in Senate, that uh, yeah, the U.S. has these bio research facilities. We don't like to call them weapons, but if they fall under Russian hands, then they will be weapons. And so, like, the Chinese have been coming out since the very beginning. The Chinese uh, Foreign Ministry spokesperson came out in February of 2020, one month into this, tweeting out articles from Global Research that had. Ex exposed the evidence of genetic targeting of U.S. generated bioweapons. One of the labs is uh, in Wuhan, which is run by the Pentagon. So it just shows you what type of deep state operations were protecting that in China under Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance, again, tied directly to Metabiota and the Hunter Biden laptop in a variety of ways, that it seems coincided. At least this, this is one thing that was there on the ground, but you also had the U.S. military games where obviously the U.S representatives from the U.S. military who uh, played in Wuhan in, in October 2020, uh, 2019, they had no skills. They, they, they didn't even make it on the, uh, the honorable mention board of any of the games. They, they were not there to do sports. <laughs> so there's a bunch of things like that, which the Chinese have been like, I think, very scared of. And they, that's where I think part of their, their choice to do the hyper, hyper secure, overhanded in some cases lockdown that they did was out of fear that this could be one or a future, uh, a, a multi-phase operation to uh, conduct biological warfare on them. The Russians are also equally concerned about this and have been, they've been speaking openly about this since 2016, Lavrov and others. So I think that's part, part of it. The other thing is I see evidence of a fight against like the mRNA tech in uh, China. Like China has had a lot of pressure for two years 
by Pfizer and others to get the mRNA um, mm. gene therapies into their uh, territory. And they've fought against it the whole time to keep control mm. of whatever it is as much as possible, at least in their hands and not in the hands of their opponents. Russia has done similar fights to keep out most a lot of mRNA tech. However, at the same time, I've seen a lot of evidence that their Sputnik V is is not safe. Even though it's not mRNA gene therapy, it's it's also not safe. And I think that has a lot to do with this Western deep state crowd around Sparebank. There's a few Davos creatures who have been installed in positions of where they have protection, despite Putin's 20-year fight against a lot of this parasite. There's some that have still maintained their controls there. And I've written, that's a, that's going to be a chapter in volume three of The Clash of the Two Americas, is a mapping of some of these figures and creatures who have, what they did under under the World Health Organization protocols under, under COVID is they devolved authority in Russia, in China, in the United States to the states and local controllers under the idea that the federal government is too far removed from the crisis on the ground. And so we have to bypass federal authorities as much as possible to allow for governors in Russia or China, or we saw that in New York in the US, who were able to operate outside of Trump's authority to impose protocols on their people, which were in disagreement with the, the, federal, the federal authorities. This is, we've seen fights between Putin's network versus the creatures running Moscow or St. Petersburg or other oblasts in Russia. We've seen the same thing with uh, Xi Jinping fighting against them on various occasions, different provincial governors in China who have tried to go, you know, full hog on mandatory vaccines for everybody and, and so much more. Um, so there's a lot of evidence of these fights and, uh, and it's important to keep that in mind. So awesome. <laughs> I could talk. I mean, it could just go on and on, couldn't it? It's incredible. Yeah. Thank you, Matthew. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to, I want to just say it's, probably a deep state bioweapon release then rather than from China? Is that the conclusion? My evidence, what I'm looking at is pointing certainly at that. If it came out of the Wuhan lab, I don't think it was a Chinese policy. Um, and it had a lot more to do with this global, I mean, China doesn't have, they got two BSL-4 labs inside of China's border. The US operates something on the scale of 300, as far as I could see internationally. Um, not all are BSL-4, but they're they're all capable of doing some very nefarious work on, on Black Plague and everything else you could imagine and have been doing work on coronavirus and other stuff. Now, this current coronavirus doesn't seem like it's particularly all that virulent. I think it's novel enough that it was enough to be a, a, a psych job for a lot of people to justify something more nefarious as far as a response protocol. But does that mean that it's not possible that a future variant could be cooked up and released that could have a more detrimental effect to human life? Possibly. Yeah. Could it be gene targeted? Certainly. That that technology has been available for a long time to target specific Han Chinese or Slavic or other, you know, targets. I think maybe that's why Iran suffered so, so terribly, you know, early on, um, where other, other nations didn't get hit as much as the Iranians did. They didn't suffer as much. So things like that. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll hand this back to Grace and a big thank you, Matthew. Yeah, sure, it's a pleasure. So Matthew, Matthew, it's you're really awesome. And so let's keep it open that we could invite you again and you can come back again, please, yeah, in sure. the future. So we like that open system as well. And uh, we 
like we deep dive, then we went up to the moon, we went to 700 AD. You know what I'm wishing, Matthew, because I know sometimes you, you talk about it. Um, I want to go all the way BC and then <laughs> an off-planet conversations, because I know you have those things, because sometimes I hear you once in a while, you, you know, with your great game, you mentioned words, you know, that I said, oh, Matthew knows something more, okay? Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> <laughs> and so, and then, um, so thank you again, Matthew. And uh, and you, by the way, to all to those people also. Yeah, he Matthew has really great that um, weekly that great game with one or two other people. And then you have that weekly every Sunday educational thing with rising. And he has your your guests are really awesome there's one lady that i want to reach out maybe to you you can connect with us she's elder she's like i believe from she's a an artist and when you are talking about cultural things so oh irene who did the thing on the the congress for cultural freedom yeah and the, the cultural war in germany that's her yes and yeah, for yeah, yeah. Me, yeah, for me, for me, knowing these things, because that's also how we can keep our sovereignty if we keep that, but uh, understand how they manipulate our culture, arts, music. And mm -hmm. but let, why don't you end us, Matthew, with that? You made me laugh when you because you're talking about the lineage and look at their offspring. So how, <laughs> how do you describe Dustin Trudeau and other people? And that will be our end. Make us laugh. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think definitely I, I get a certain sense of um, hope, strangely enough, when I do look at the de-evolution, de the, the devolution of the, the oligarchy's own managerial class and their own tendency to want to promulgate their, their genetic stock with only those who are very closely related to them. And I think when you when you just look at some of the intellectual performance capabilities of people like a Prince Charles, you know, bred of cousins who are bred of cousins who are bred of cousins, the gene pool getting thin is is provably scientifically not a way to increase your your faculties, mental or otherwise. And I think that comparing the 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 quality of thought of even like a lower level person, you brought up Justin Trudeau, that's a good example. Uh, you know, second generation manager, he's not qualified to manage a Starbucks. Like, I mean, there's nothing I would say, you know, I, I, I can I can listen to the the speeches of Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who was a very well positioned manager. He was very effective at being a manager. He was a smart guy. He was the type of guy you would kind of want to have as, uh, you know, on the ground carrying out something evil. He could think he was trained in a Jesuit Jesuitical edu education. He was trained under William Yandel Elliott at Harvard. He was given a, a Fabian Society education in, L in the London School of Economics. You know, he he had a certa, he had a brain. His poor kid has been living in the shadow, and and his whole world has just been a an echo chamber of self congratulatory ego feeding. You know, like since he's been a kid, and you got to feel a bit bad in some sense. For such a, a mental character who's never been allowed to just have a, a inner critical dialogue with yourself, he just hasn't, he doesn't have any of that that's been given to him. It's been crushed since he's been a kid. Maybe, you know, I, I listened to an interview of him uh, coming out of, of Star Wars episode two or something in 1981, and he seemed like a, a nice kid. But 
something happened where his whole life has been controlled by handlers. He's been induced to take on this giant, massive ego. And when he actually says something, it's it's vapid and empty. And he could have European parliamentarian after parliamentarian lay down truth bombs right to his face at the European parliament. And we've all seen, I think, the videos of this montage of these various parliamentarians just calling him out as a dictator and proving why that why that's true. And he could just sit there with his glazed over look and weird smile going, I'm awesome. I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and walk out thinking he's really great. Um, that's sad. It's just so sad. But it gives me hope because the mediocrity of these characters is the best that the oligarchy can come up with. And if that's the best that they can come up with, when I compare that to the quality of thinking of like, uh, the statecraft of uh, a Wang Wang Yi of China, or a, uh, a Lavrov, or a Sergei Shoigu, or a, I mean, there's real human thinking going on there. That that's that's competent. I don't see the, the the oligarchy capable of carrying out an effective battle against real creative human thinking. Um, so that again, like I said, it, for me, it gives me a bit of hope. It, it might make a bit of a mess. Uh, life might not be necessarily comfortable for a lot of people on this side of the Iron Curtain, but overall, for the grand scheme of things, I am given a lot of hope for that. Well, thank you, Matthew. And uh, please do subscribe to Matthew Substack and then get his two books. One is The Untold History of Canada, second is The Clash of the Two Americas. And, you know, just subscribe to Rising Tide Foundation and the CanadianPatriot.org. And yeah. so in closing, in eternal reverence, joy, and gratitude for the unceasing love and mercy of the one source most divine. We really like to thank Matthew and to all of you. I know many of you are doing great work as well. And this will be uploaded to all different platforms in Bichu, Trumbull, Brighton, wherever they welcome us. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks. This podcast is and always will be free. There are two ways you can help me as I spend a lot of time researching, recording, editing, and marketing my podcasts. I also have plenty of costs with like Zoom, BitChute, StreamYards, as well as equipment. I have a donation button, which you can buy me a coffee once a month, or even just donate one euro, because if everybody who listens to the podcast donate one euro, it would cover all the costs. You can also support our sponsors. All the links are in the podcast show notes. Thank you for listening. This podcast is sponsored by Kulabula that creates simple and very advanced websites, as well as creating fantastic animation. If you or someone you know is looking to start or update their websites, we're offering a genuine 20% discount with the code AWAKENING. Just go to Kulabula.com and the links are in the podcast description. Mm-hmm.